Hello and welcome back to The Crit. I'm one of your hosts, Ollie Stratford. And my name's Christina Rapatsky. I'm your other host. We are sorry that we're a bit late with this episode. We were busy finalising the latest issue of Desenio. And I heartily recommend that everyone pick up that new issue. There's lots of interesting stuff in there, a roundtable looking back on the legacy of the great designer Enzo Mari, as told by his collaborators, curators, former students. We also have a look at Contemporaries, a new storefront gallery community space in Dumbo, New York, uh, led by Stephen Burks and Malika Leiper. There are stories about the COVID-19 vaccine rollout and public communication around that, and also a dive into uh, television design and why all of our televisions look the same. But now we're back, the issue's been sent to print, uh, and we're ready to get back to the important work of critting the design news. Let's crit! So the first story we're going to be looking at today is the announcement of the Design of the Year. Uh, So Designs of the Year is an annual programme run by the Design Museum in London. Uh, It's a display of nominated projects from across all areas of design, architecture, fashion. And they put all of those on public display. And then a little while into the exhibition's running time, they hold a competition. They bring together a jury of experts and pick winners in individual categories. So product design, graphics, architecture. And on top of that, they pick an overall winner. So the best design of 2020. They have a couple of categories. Uh, There's transport as well and digital. And the overall winner was also the winner of the transport category. It's the Tita Toto Wall designed by uh, Ronald Rael and Virginia Sanfrontello with the Colectivo Chopeki. Chopik? Chopek. Chopeke. Um, And uh, this is the um, installation which uh, lasted, I think, only for about 20 minutes before it was dismantled again of a series of bright pink seesaws on the border wall between uh, Mexico and the United States. Uh, And this happened in 2019. It allowed children from El Paso in the United States and uh, Juarez in Mexico to play together for about 20 minutes uh, before, uh, I don't know, was it the border, border patrol that came and dismantled it? Or was it was it planned that it would only last for 20 minutes? Do you know, Oli? Well, I think border patrol did come and dismantle it, but it was planned, I suppose, to the extent that they knew this would not be a lasting project. They didn't have permissions to put it up. So this is a kind of guerrilla installation. It's really cleverly done. So the pink seesaws literally slot between the gaps in this steel fence. Um, I think it's a very charming project. I think it's really lovely and obviously it's timely and topical. I think one disappointment I have with the project almost is it largely exists through this video documentation of the seesaws being installed and this beautiful imagery of the children playing on it on either side and it's a really powerful strong message. I wish that they had captured some of the seesaws being taken down and dismantled. I think that would be very powerful, actually, and really add to it to see the response. I mean, perhaps that's not what they were going for, because that's obviously quite a bleak series of images, seeing uh, sort of federal agents uh, throwing children off seesaws and ripping them down. But in its own way, that would have been telling as well. But I I suspect they just wanted to show that positive message, and Mm. that's fair enough. Your criticism is that it wasn't uh, wasn't 
wasn't bleak enough. I'd have liked some tears, yeah. <laughs> some, <laughs> I'd, some crying have, I'd have liked the play to end in acrimony and tears. No, no, no. I, I, I like it as it is. I just think there would be there would be something so interesting, and maybe this footage exists. I haven't seen it, but maybe it exists. But it would be fascinating to see these things mm. being taken down and to understand that side because they knew that was going to happen. I guess. And in a sense, that's part of the project as well. Mm. What do you think about some of the other winners? There's there's a couple of interesting projects in there, none of which I don't think would kind of classify as, what should we call it? Sort of Heartlands design. Traditional Hot- design? Yeah. The product category, for instance, was won by Impossible Burger 2.0. <laughs> <laughs> impossible burger 2.0 more impossible than ever <laughs> impossible burger the first burger was impossible the second burger was impossible too yeah uh right so j- okay just for clarity the impossible burger is one of these sort of uh vegan burgers no animal products in there but designed to mimic a traditional beef burger so for it to taste a little bit like it for the textures to be similar we're in that sort of territory faux meat i think one thing that i found pleasing about the impossible burger winning in the product category was for a long time food design struggled to get much recognition as as a former product design i suppose despite the fact that food and packaged food must be one of the most widely consumed products there are for some reason it it, it was never treated with seriousness by the design disciplines i suppose and through the work of uh, a lot of practitioners like uh, maria vogelzang jacopo sazi it, it began to gain a little bit of momentum but often principally as more of a gallery based discipline and so to see something very consumer facing unashamedly producty like the impossible burger recognized as a piece of design i think shows quite how far that discipline has come in a very short amount of time also in the digital category uh, a song yeah this is a protest performance un violador en tu camino which is um, a rapist in your way by colectivo las tesis and it's yeah, it's a song and an accompanying dance. It's, it was performed by especially women and queer people in many parts of Latin America and was disseminated very widely online. I suppose it's a, it's a, it's a new way of looking at protest and how it's put together and how it then looks online and the effect it has in the digital realm, uh, which is an interesting way to think of it as a, as a form of design. Yeah, and interesting to present it as a piece of design in a way, because I think, you know, it's not an obvious design project in some senses, but I think when you classify it as design, it perhaps does speak of the level of coordination, the level of care, the level of thought that's gone into this. You know, these things don't happen spontaneously and maybe highlighting the effort that goes into activism and everything behind that is a good thing so it's powerful and I I think it speaks to the fact that this year's um, this year's winners were maybe more political in some ways than previous years I mean it's not too long ago since you had um, pieces of furniture, for instance, winning in the product category and so on, which, I mean, they're worthy winners, nothing wrong with a piece of furniture winning, but definitely maybe a bit more of um, a social edge to the winners this year, I think. Um, 
I was surprised in some ways that they didn't pick as the winner the 3D visualization of um, the COVID-19 virus by Lisa Eckert and Dan Higgins. So, you know, that sort of hideous globule with the sort of minesweeper little nodules coming <laughs> Disgusting out. Disgusting tentaculars, spike proteins. <laughs> it's, it's horrible grasping hands. Um, but it's been everywhere this year and it's been such a big thing. And I, I just, I wondered if that mm. might get the nod because of relevance to 2020. For me, that's probably the design that spoke most of 2020. So there's an architectural render that's made the rounds online on Twitter and other such sites. These last few days, it's a kind of swirling helix-shaped building in Arlington, Virginia. Amazon country. Have you seen this render? Ollie? I have seen this. This is the new Amazon headquarters or part of the new Amazon headquarters. It's a load of office blocks, isn't it? Mm. All all centered around this uh <laughs> swirling spiral which is very green it's all planted with trees and um How nice. it has a, it has an unfortunate resemblance well i think it's been compared to a lot of things quite charitably it's been compared to uh the tower of babel uh especially as it looks in that bruegel painting uh you know the kind of swelling uh, yeah. ziggurat structure very charitably <laughs> compared <laughs> I think the thing, though, which has really captured people's imagination and which people seem to feel really sums up what this new headquarters looked like is the poop emoji. Yeah, yeah, it does look a bit like a like a green turd. And it's not the first turd building. There's a there's a little bit of a vogue for these turd buildings. So there's the golden turd in Edinburgh, the St James's Centre, which again is this spiraling gold structure, like a sort of Mr Whippy, but um, <laughs> exec- executed in the colours of feces. You just you do have to be careful <laughs> as an architect <laughs> with a with a spiraling tower. Yeah, and there's a really famous one as well, done by Philip Stark, I think, back in the late eighties, which is the Asahi Beer Hall in uh, Tokyo, oh, where he put one. this sort of it's called the Asahi Flame on uh. on top of the tower, but it. <laughs> It looks as it it looks like um you know a Todd. Mm. It looks like a Todd he's put on top of the tower. Mm. Fecal architecture. It's it's <laughs> it's the new thing. It's becoming a thing, which you know maybe is a nice is a nice break from phallic architecture. Well, I think that one of the most more interesting uh, or ironic comparisons has also been with uh, Taplin's tower, which is the the constructivist masterpiece by Vladimir Tatin that was designed right after the Bolshevik revolution and was going to house the uh, third international in in what was then Petrograd and that structure is also uh, a helix shaped uh, tower that would have you know dwarfed the Eiffel Tower Mm. it would have been like 400 meters tall had it been built yeah it's one of the great sort of lost works of architecture yeah I don't know if it's a conscious do you think it's a conscious reference? I mean, maybe. Because that would be like trolling workers on an architectural scale. <laughs> I mean, maybe. It's such a... I think there is this vogueishness around sort of natural forms and the idea of we should learn from nature. Nature uses helixes and spirals. That's what we're going to build as our temple to cardboard shipping. 
I, I mean, yeah, I'm sure Tatlin would be thrilled to know his ideas have been partly taken up by Jeff Bezos's empire of cheap books and uh, one-day delivery. I'm sure exactly what he'd hoped for. Um, I think we should segue into the other big piece of Amazon-related news, which is that Jeff Bezos has stepped down, or is stepping down, rather, as CEO. Is it Bezos or Bezos? I thought it was Bezos. I've always thought Bezos. I prefer Bezos. I think Bezos sounds like a sort of enemy of Flash Gordon, who'd be like a space warlord in, in like a thong with long hair, like beware Bezos. <laughs> he's he's so Jeff Jeff Bezos Jeff Bezos. Who knows? Well, probably Jeff knows. But he is stepping down uh, from his role as CEO of Amazon. He's going to stay on as executive chairman, but is handing the sort of day to day running to his trusted lieutenant, Andy Jassy, who's the chief executive of Amazon's cloud computing division. I think he's been there for years, since the mid-90s, and that cloud computing has been a major success for Amazon. It makes them a lot of money, so he's he's clearly the anointed yeah, one. Yeah, I think that, that's the interesting thing about Amazon, is that on on the surface, it you know we think of it in terms of the e-commerce, the e-retail revolution that is kind of pioneered. But the real profit driver, my impression is that that's actually the web hosting services that they provide. You know, they they provide web hosting and storage for governments and like Netflix, and they were able to completely shut down Parler, like we discussed uh, in the last episode by deplatforming them quite literally you know, not hosting them on their web services. Yeah, I think it's certainly the grow like a hugely growing area. So it bought in forty five billion in sales in twenty twenty and that's up thirty percent from twenty nineteen. So it's a massive business and it's accelerating really quickly. Do you think Jeff Bezos was so upset that Elon Musk had overtaken him as the world's richest man that he was like, ah oh pack it in they do seem like strange competitors don't they because they're both obsessed with going to space Mm. maybe they could both go to space together and live on mars and a shelter built of their own money (laughs) i think that's actually the plan from hq2 to hs2 oh do you want to very nice very smooth Oh, I thought that was the introduction. No, I was think that... we should keep that in, yeah. <laughs> yeah, keep that in, definitely. This is the protests happening outside Euston in Euston Square Gardens um, against HS2. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know what HS2 is, it's a high-speed rail link uh, that's proved hugely controversial in the UK. The idea is it's supposed to link London to a host of northern cities. So it moves up to Birmingham and then on to Crewe, Leeds and places like that. It's very divisive as to whether the nation needs this railway, whether this railway is worth the vast amounts of money that are being spent on it. And I think crucially for this story, the environmental aspect of HS2. So it would run through a number of areas of natural beauty and also um, require the destruction of some historic woodlands. Yeah, so a, a protest group called HS2 Rebellion has in the last few months occupied Euston Square which is the little green patch in front of Euston Station in central London, which is slated to be the um, the London terminus of HS2. 
And under the cover of night, they managed to dig a tunnel of unknown length under Euston Station and occupy it and build a sort of fortification out of pallets at the tunnel entrance. I mean, God knows... God knows how they've done it. I've read that there was sort of tunnelling under a tent that was set up because I, I think there's quite a lot of rough sleepers outside yeah. of Euston. So they were able to set up this tent and then tunnel under it while smuggling the earth out, like, I guess in backpacks and things like that. I mean, it, it's an extraordinary yeah, in the sort middle of, of the night. feat of sort of do-it-yourself engineering. And they've been buttressing this tunnel like... I think it's it, no one's sure exactly, and they're not saying, but it, it seems quite an extensive, quite an extensive <laughs> tunnel network. So, some people, some reports are saying a hundred feet, which is absolutely extraordinary, um, and and several people. Uh, again, it's unknown exactly how many people are still um, occupying it. There's. Mm. You know, they're in the throes of sort of legal wranglings around evicting the protesters from from this tunnel, um, who I suppose, in the eyes of the law, are trespassing. Uh, But it's extraordinary. One of the uh, most outspoken activists, Larch Maxi, said of the tunnel that our building processes have definitely been a real feat of engineering, much more organic and handmade than HS2's version. Uh, We've taken pride in our work and have used a mix of modern techniques such as impact drivers and piping to let air in and basic carpentry, which is uh, is, (laughs) it's really great. Kind of reads like a press release about a new uh, (laughs) a new cool design project in Shoreditch. Um, I love it. It's kind of a worrying situation, though, because Mm. obviously it it is very impressive what they've managed to do, but it's super dangerous (laughs) for people to be living in these tunnels underground. And I think particularly now that authorities are trying to evict them and they're apparently building a parallel tunnel, that's endangered this original tunnel, uh, the protesters say. And they've started to have flooding. They've started to have some cave-ins. Mm, so It has rained a lot as well. It, it is funny and charming. And I think the protest is amazing. And this sort of using the tools of development against development is kind of interesting, almost a bit like the GameSpot story with... GameStop, sorry, story with hedge funds. But it is scary and worrying, you know, that's it it could easily turn sour very quickly. You know, it it's really sad that people have to go to these lengths to try and get their message listened to, to try and get HS2 to take seriously their fears around environmental degradation and destruction of these woodlands. Okay, so on to the products and projects category. The first one we're going to look at this week is a new plant pot system by USM. So if anyone doesn't know USM, it's a Swiss company who produce modular kind of storage units, I suppose, although they're pretty multifunctional. I guess you could use them for anything. But they're a really interesting company. So they set up this range, the USM Haller range, back in 1962. And it's remained more or less unchanged ever since. The same system, the same system of... Um, Stainless uh, steel? Oh, what's the metal? 
Stainless steel. <laughs> Stainless steel pipes with these beautiful ball joints and you build them up into these complex constellations of sort of cabinets and shelves or whatever you want really. And they occasionally introduce new products that can fit within that existing framework. I, re- I do, I really love a company that just does one thing but does it really, really, really well. It's a bit yeah. like Vitso and the 606 Universal Shelving System as well, where it's like, we have this one thing, it's beautifully designed, it's fantastically well put together in terms of the construction, and then we might add features to it, but it's fundamentally the same thing. We just do that really well, and we've done it for a half century. And USM is a little bit like that. I think, it not their factory is also made out of the same ball joint system? Yeah, that's it started with that. So Fritz Haller, this architect, he did the factory and then I think they felt it was such a good idea. Could they develop a product out of the same system? So this intensely rational, logical way of building, but it's very beautiful. It looks mm. it looks lovely. And um It's kind of seamless. Yeah. So the new ones are just these little sort of frames that fit within that grid. And they have holes cut out into which plant pots go. So you have little planting stations built into your cabinet system. I think this is an interesting new feature because I suppose USM furniture gets used in a lot of office settings and the last few years, but especially the last year uh, with with the pandemic, has obviously been a, a sea change for how we think about offices. And so to introduce this uh, kind of new emphasis on greenery and introducing greenery in the office space is I think uh, quite quite significant or quite a significant indication of how office design is thinking about working environments. I've killed so many plants over the course of the pandemic. Really? I think it's the kiss of death having me home. <laughs> My attention towards them is toxic the more I do. Well, what have you been doing to them? You know, trying my best. Just try, <laughs> trying my damn best. But you're probably overwatering them in that case. I, th- I think it's a Stratford family trait. My dad has a fish pond and whenever he tries to do anything for the fish to help them, like mm. introducing new plants or putting something new in the water, it just results in mass death. <laughs> oh, God. That's a, what, so what's the, what's the opposite of green fingers? Rot fingers. Plague fingers. <laughs> Well, maybe maybe the new USM planters aren't for you then. I think the next story we're going to look at is the Nike Go Flyies, which is a new trainer developed by Nike. Uh, I think an awful lot of development has gone into this. I think it's the product of several years. And the idea is that it's a laceless trainer. So it's a trainer which fixes around your foot in a very different way. Yeah, you don't have to use your hands. They're a hands-free trainer, which is a first for Nike and and a a first in the industry, I believe. Yeah, as far as I know, definitely being built in this way. So the shoe, basically, the way it works is it's hinged. So when um, you want to... It's kind of like two shoes. Exactly. When you want to get out, you stand on the kickstand at the back to push it down. And that breaks those two parts apart. So it frees up your foot. You can step out. And then when you step in, you just press down and it snaps shut. And there's a sort of, um, I think they call it a tensioner. There's like a big rubber band, basically. (laughs) That makes it sound quite ugly. It looks quite nice. But there's a big rubber band which locks it into 
uh, form around your foot. Like a headband, like a sporty headband, but around the shoe. And I think it's an interesting product. I know the designers put out lots of reasons as to why they were doing this, saying, oh, it's more convenient. And there are some cultures they mentioned, specifically Japan, where you might take your shoes on and off more regularly, and this makes it easier. I think where the shoe becomes interesting, particularly, is there are lots of people out there for whom laces are really difficult. Like, it is a challenge to be able to put shoes on and to um, have the manual dexterity or to go through the movements to do that. So people, for instance, who might have a disability or who, um, you know, like perhaps there's... Super pregnant. Pregnant, exactly. Just older people for whom that's a challenge. Something like this is actually really useful, potentially. It looks nice and it is at at an affordable price as well. Uh, I mean, still $120, I think, is the retail price. Still still a lot of money. If you compare it with other trainers, kind of designer trainers, that's actually quite a, a decent price, I would say. Yeah, I think so. And I think one thing that is kind of nice about it, like you said, they look nice. They look like streetwear, casual wear. And often elements of universal design or design that has been put together for um, the disabled community, for instance, doesn't yeah. particularly have a lot of care spent over it. It, it often looks rather agricultural and something not as refined maybe which i i know some people have pointed out the sort of problems surrounding that so to have something which fits within nike's range which looks like nike's other trainers but maybe caters to that audience is significant people were being uh, funny about it on twitter though weren't they yeah it's a couple of butthurt critics sort of saying oh nike's talking about how it's it's solved this huge problem but no one was asking them to solve it. And I, I think that's a nonsense because it, it, it ignores a huge number of people for whom uh, tying up laces might be difficult. And then they were complaining that it looks very fashion, like, oh, well, if it's for if it's for these more uh, medicals, not the right word, but you know what I mean, like medical purposes, why does it look like that? I think, well, why can't it? Why why can't um... like why can't it look why can't we have nice things for everyone? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I mean it's I just think also it's it's kind of interesting as a piece of engineering. Like shoelaces are a great way of tying up a shoe. They give you a lot of control, um, they let you alter the tension at different points. It works really well. But there are some situations in which that's not so good. So why not try out some of these alternative methods? Yeah. We should credit Toby. Hatfield, who is uh, the iconic uh, footwear designer who works with Nike and who has helped develop the flyies. Um, the first flyies, which was a pair of trainers that you could put on using just one hand, I think that launched in 2015. Uh, and then this Go Flyies is the kind of uh, an evolution of that idea. Yeah, I'm kind of interested to follow the story and see how the trainers do over time because obviously something like a hinge that's you'd imagine would wear over time. I know they've done a huge amount of testing and say it will last, but I'd uh, yeah, I'd be curious to see how this system fares with repeated use and how it will be further developed in future. But I think it's it's an interesting change and one that I think helps a huge number of people. The final project that we wanted to flag up is an exhibition that is at the Carwan Gallery in Athens. It, I think it was a Beirut 
based gallery originally, but they have a new space in Athens. And it's an exhibition that's been extended to the end of March because of the ongoing pandemic situation. And it features the work of Polish designer Martin Rusak, who I think has made a career for himself out of working in very subtle very highly researched ways um, with plant material and flowers. Yeah, so Martin uh, graduated from the Royal College of Art and his his graduate work there was a lot around using these organic materials, flowers, and finding ways to preserve them and building them into sort of structural materials. And I, I think the materials he's developed always look amazing and as you said, they're always consummately put together and a huge amount of thought and effort goes into the development of that. And this new exhibition, Protoplasting Nature, seems to be a continuation of that. I I mean, obviously, neither of us have been able to travel to Athens to see the show, but the pieces on display look kind of extraordinary and uh, are a departure from that earlier work. So, He's created these sort of lamps and lights, but in place of a lampshade, he's used real leaves, which he then coats in zinc. So (laughs) these sort of leaves, I guess, it's almost an odd reversal, isn't it? Like the leaves, the soft organic matter become the skeleton around which the hard zinc builds up, whereas normally you'd maybe expect the opposite, sort of a zinc core with other things around them. But uh, they look they look beautiful. They look very alien and strange. I'd, I'd love to get up close and, and be able to pay some proper attention it's to them. It's a strange meeting of metal and organic matter that kind of plays around with themes of um, decay and permanence and brittleness and solidity. And uh, yeah. Yeah, I think one thing I really like about Martin's work is... He's like, you know, flowers and plants and and so on are such a reference point for any number of designers. They borrow the forms and then execute them in other materials. I think it's nice that Martin kind of gets his hands dirty, if you like. <laughs> he actually works with plants and flowers as material. Like he's um, he's down in the undergrowth and seeing what you could do with those and how you could work with those. So he gets these very beautiful results but there's much more than just this aesthetic reference. He's he's actually working with the stuff and matter of flora. Yeah, he, I think he comes from a family of floriculturists as well. And I've in, I interviewed him a, a long time ago, and he's hugely knowledgeable about uh, not just plants and the cultural history of plants and flowers themselves, but also the the industry of flowers. And you know, he could. He could tell me all about the kind of the bulb auctions that still take place in Amsterdam and, uh, you know, where the bulbs are then shipped to to be grown and then shipped to be sold. And he has this enormously impressive grasp of the, the materials he uses. In short, Martin Rusak, he's a good guy. Go see his show. <laughs> all right. I think that's all we have time for <laughs> this time around. It's a slightly shorter episode this week, but, you know, we're, we're tired from putting together the new yeah. journal. <laughs> so if you want us at our best, then I strongly recommend people go out and, and buy a copy of Decennia 28. should be arriving in stores from 12th of February. In the meantime, you can get in touch with us on thecrit at com. 
You can follow us on at Crit Podcast on Instagram and at Crit Design on Twitter. And please do like and subscribe. It really helps the podcast and helps other people find it. Yeah, you can also leave a nice review. We'd like that very much. episode of The Crit was produced by Evie Hall and edited by me, Christina Rapatsky. Our jingle is by Yuri Suzuki and Team Suzuki at Pentagon.